Hello, folks. Welcome to episode 68 of the acclaimed music and culture podcast, Ear Buddies. As you have probably picked up by now, it's just Maddie on the mic today. Solo ep. First solo ep of the new season. Uh, I'm excited. Um, as we have discussed before, and as I'm sure we all remember, these solo episodes, whether with just him or just me, are uh, more thrilling and more titillating in a lot of ways than the uh, regular episodes, the, the normal episodes. Not that anything is normal when it comes to ear buddies in the army. But um, yeah, Tim couldn't make it. Um, scheduling life gets in the way and crushes all of our passions into just a dying ember from the burning flame that it once was. But that being the case, uh, I am still thrilled to bring you a, uh, an exciting episode today. I think that as a podcaster, it's important to look at the data uh, look at the, the crowd reaction, the response, and, and build on your past successes. And as any cadet in the Army will tell you, my greatest triumph on this podcast was uh, an episode called The Story of a Song, where I spoke in great detail and with my signature charm and sparkling wit about The Lion Sleeps Tonight. That famous tune that we all know and love. I spoke about its history, its conflicts, its uh, background, all kinds of exciting stuff that none of us knew before. And so today I would like to do a similar thing. The song Bittersweet Symphony by The Verve uh, is a tune that I'm going to say all of us know in some capacity or another. And I say all of us uh, because I'm speaking to everyone from the age of 5 to 500, the young and the old. Um, I would like to take this episode to trace its, um, its history and its evolution and, again, its, its conflicts. This one is a lot less um, about colonization and... Uh, you know, really concerning, sort of off-putting stuff, and a bit more about the way that this particular piece of music has uh, evolved to become a, a piece of music that all of us have heard in some form or another. And of course, there are legal battles throughout this, and of course, there are some hurt feelings and some bad blood. Um, but I think I'm going to handle it well. Uh, I am a, a compassionate reporter, and I'm going to give everyone their fair shake. So without further waffling, let's begin. In 1954, a family gospel group called the Staple Singers, um, which is now maybe most famous for being the group from which Mavis Staples, a very famous R&B and gospel singer, came from, uh, released a song called This May Be the Last Time. Um, and this song, it's, it's interesting to start 
here because this is as early as we can start. This song, this may be the last time, was just a gospel song. It was uh, sort of a standard among a lot of gospel groups um, around then. Um, And I'm going to say nobody really knows who originally wrote this song, uh, which is uh, annoying to me and, and a little bit frustrating because I like to go all the way back and find, you know, the real genesis of, of these stories. But uh, as with many, many gospel songs and folk songs, um, the origins have really uh, been lost to time. So we start in 1954 um, with this uh, actual vinyl recording of this tune by the Staple Singers, which I'm going to play a bit of for you now. Pretty good, right? Certainly nothing to sneeze at. Um, although, you may be asking yourself, or me, saying, Maddie, that does not sound anything like the song that you just mentioned at the beginning of this episode, Bittersweet Symphony. Um, and by gosh, you'd be, you'd be correct to say that. The last episode I did with uh, The Lion Sleeps Tonight, I sort of buried the lead and didn't say which song I was talking about right away. Uh, I thought that was sort of a fun, cool thing to do as a podcaster, and, and sort of the reveal would sneak up on you as you listened. But we already know what song we're listening for, and specifically uh, the you know little string riff that we all know and love from Bittersweet Symphony. That is not even a little bit present in uh, in this version uh, of that tune. It's not even the same tune. Um, so why waste our time talking about this? Clearly, uh, this is just a red herring. No, it's not. Uh, I researched this. You did not. So you just need to listen, hold my hand, and follow me on this journey. This may be the last time did pretty well. Uh, it never became a massive hit for the Staple Singers. It's not really one of their best-known tunes. But here's what happened next in our story. In 1965, the Rolling Stones, our next players in this, in this journey, uh, adapted a version of the tune for their song, The Last Time. And the Rolling Stones uh, are, or were... I guess still are, sort of famous for being a little bit of a blues uh, slash gospel knockoff band, at least in the beginning. They adapted a lot of their stuff from traditional blues music and and some traditional gospel. And so somehow Keith or Mick or one of them heard uh, this may be the last time and thought, let's... uh, Let's rip this off. And I mean that in the nicest way. They, they uh, recorded a version in 1965 that is markedly different 
of course, from the Staple Singers version, and it is simply called The Last Time. Well, I told you once and I told you twice But you never listened to my advice You don't try very hard to please me With what you know it should be easy Well, this could be the last time This could be the last time And I'd say that version is also pretty good. Um, it is already a bit far removed from the Staple Singers version. It is, in essence, a new song. It's got a, a new uh, melody, a new guitar lick. Um, and if you didn't know about the Staple Singers version, it would be uh, it would be hard to draw a connection there. But in their own words, uh, they did readapt the Staple Singers version for this. And uh, people people loved it. It went. It was their third single to go number one in the UK. Um, and it was, uh, it was a lucrative single for the Stones. But I can hear the rustling of feet and the, the clearing of throats in the, in the army right now. You're asking, once again, Maddie, uh, I'm still not hearing it. I'm still not hearing that iconic string riff that we know and love from Bittersweet Symphony. To which I say to you, you must be patient. We will get there. Here's what happened next. In 1965, that same year, the original manager and record producer for the Stones, named Andrew Oldham, uh, well, he had a little a little side project called the Andrew Oldham Orchestra. Uh, and this was not a real orchestra. This was just him uh, screwing around in much the same way that, uh, for example, Ben Gibbard of Death Cab for Cutie and Postal Service had... Uh, a side project called All-Time Quarterback. It was just him, um, just having some fun on his own. That's what Andrew was doing. And he uh, had, you know, the the record, the Stones record, and thought, well, I wonder what I can do with this thing. And so being a, a talented and visionary gentleman, he again readapted this tune into an orchestral arrangement using some session musicians and loops and basically just having a nice time in his studio by himself. And I'm going to play a bit of that for you now. There it is. There's the payoff that we've been waiting for. That's when we start to hear in this version the iconic string section and, heck, the beat too, um, of Bittersweet Symphony. Um, and I'll mention too, this is, this is interesting in how not interesting it was for the impending court cases. These strings, that section, the thing that's 
in Bittersweet Symphony and in our heads. Uh, those were written and arranged by a gentleman named David Whitaker. Um, and he doesn't really come up again in this story, which is fascinating to me because that's the the meat, right? That's the the little piece of carbon that never decayed throughout all of this. That's what is still there in kind of every version and sample and adaptation we're hearing of this from now on. But I guess nobody cares about David Whitaker. And to be fair, I mean, at that point, what would have happened is he, you know, he was a session guy uh, for hire. And so most likely he simply uh, did this arrangement and got paid for it uh, and called it a day and didn't get any royalties in perpetuity. Uh, I don't know. I, I would have been fighting for a little piece of the pie if I was David, but from what I can tell, and please call in and correct me if I'm wrong here. I'd love to, I'd love to be wrong. But from what I can tell, David, uh, did the work, got his check and, uh, went on his merry way. But those strings, that's what set the stage for a bit of a legal kerfuffle in the, uh, in the next decades. And so, a few decades down the line, along comes a brand new exciting band called The Verve. They were a Britpop band, part of the, I guess, second wave of Britpop um, in the 90s. And Richard Ashcroft was the lead singer and, and primary songwriter for this band. He's a, a person we're going to want to remember. Um, they were recording uh, a new album, and Richard heard Andrew Oldham's version and uh, thought, wow, there's something here. I can do something with this. And boy, was he right. Couple, uh, couple of liner notes here. This, uh, this version, this song, the one that we all know and love, was produced by a guy called Youth. Um, and I don't know how closely you've been listening to Ear Buddies, but Youth is the name of the bass player in Kate Bush's Big Sky. So that's just sort of a fun fact for the army to have and, and spread around the culture. Um, and also important to mention here that the strings in the actual record were not sampled uh, off of the uh, Andrew Oldham orchestra version. Uh, and sampling, just to recap, means uh, they didn't take the actual audio from that record and put it in their record. What happened was a uh, fellow named Will Malone uh, essentially redid, reorchestrated those strings, um, obviously in a very similar way, but they're not the exact same. So it's not a sample. It is technically an interpolation, which we have also talked about before. Please check your notes from past seasons. 
Now let's talk about uh, what happened after this was recorded. So essentially, um, when you are going to be using a sample or an interpolation or any sort of intellectual property from somebody else's work in music, what you ought to do, what you are supposed to do, is clear it, right? You, you talk to maybe the other person's label or their management or them themselves, and you say, hey, I think you did a great job with this, uh, this little piece of music. I would like to legally steal it, uh, which I guess means borrow it. I don't want to, I don't want to get into that particular patch of brambles. Um, you say, I'd like to borrow this and I would like your permission. And they say, that sounds great. And you negotiate and hopefully you come to some sort of equitable agreement where they get something for you using it and you get something for you using it. That's the ideal, the ideal situation and one that we all hope for every time we're striking these sorts of deals in the music industry. But there are often uh, multiple parties involved in these things, and that was the case here. So the Verve, uh, they negotiated the rights to uh, this tune with Decca Records, um, which was the big, the big one back then. The Beatles, the Stones, all these the big British bands uh, especially were on Decca. And Decca said to the Verve, that's cool, um, you can use it, here's the agreement. But... The other party involved was a gentleman by the name of Alan Klein, who had been the manager for the Stones uh, back when this this single came out, back uh, before kind of the 1970s. And as it turned out, he owned the copyrights to these songs, including The Last Time. And so when Bittersweet Symphony was uh, about to be released as a single, Mr. Klein said that the Verve had used more of this, uh, this tune than they had initially agreed to and refused to clear the sample. And another really interesting thing about this to me is that, according to uh, the Verve's guitarist in, in an interview, he said that the, the legal dispute was not about that sample at all, but actually the vocal melody which was uh, determined to be a version of the Rolling Stones' last time melody in, in halftime. Uh, fascinating to me because, you know, when I think about it, I don't hear as much uh, a copyright issue between the Stones' version of the last time and the Verve's Bittersweet Symphony. I hear it more, uh, obviously, in Andrew Oldham's orchestration of it. Um, but, you know, a musicologist who, uh, I guess went to school for that decided that, uh, that was the case. So who am I to argue? I'm just a humble podcast host. To add a, a few more parties to this, um, the Verve's manager at the time played, uh, Bittersweet Symphony for Mick and Keith, uh, who we know, of course, as guys in the Rolling Stones, and they liked the track, and they said, you know what, we don't even want to get involved in this, uh, it's good, figure it out on your own, so they were sort of of no help, the real issue, the, the problem was between their former manager, Alan Klein, and 
the verve. And so um, what ultimately happened to sort of jump over the actual lawsuit and not get too deep into that, uh, at the end of this story, well, nearly the end, uh, the verve were instructed to essentially relinquish all royalties, um, not to the Stones, but to Alan Klein, because again, remember that Alan Klein was the owner of that copyright. The songwriting credits were changed to Mick Jagger and Keith Richards, but for them, it didn't really matter because they were just getting credit on this, and the money was all going to Alan Klein. Richard Ashcroft apparently received only $1,000 from this, just lump sum, and that was the end of it. Uh, According to The Verve, they were told that they would be given half the royalties, but, you know, the single began selling very well and charting, and after that, again, according to The Verve, uh, they were told that they needed to relinquish all of the royalties or remove it from from sales. Uh, So a pretty raw deal... I would say, for Richard Ashcroft and The Verve. And to add insult to injury, Andrew Oldham, the gentleman who owned the uh, recording, the, the copyright to the uh, string version that was um, interpolated in The Verve, also wanted to get in on this, on this gold rush, and he sued them for $1.7 million in mechanical royalties. Uh, and so they lost all control of what was their biggest hit at the time, and I guess kind of forever. Uh, it was used in a Nike commercial, uh, which they didn't want, but they didn't control it. It earned them no money in that commercial, and a Nike commercial is going to get you millions of dollars if you own the copyrights. Uh, but they uh, they just had to watch it watch it happen. And uh, I guess final nail in the coffin at this time was when Bittersweet Symphony was nominated for a best uh, best song at the Grammys, and it had Mick and Keith uh, as the writers. So you can imagine Richard Ashcroft sitting, I don't know, maybe at home. I don't know if he was invited. Just fuming. But all was not lost. Uh, Richard Ashcroft, if you if you read interviews and you really dive into the Verve's um, history, which I guess, you know, I recommend if you're bored, um, he was very bitter about this because the song generated at least five million, probably more, in just publishing uh, by, you know, 2019. And he... Uh, he was kind of irate, which I understand, that that money had been, as he saw it, stolen from him. Um, but the good thing that happened, and and sort of a, a light on the hill for all of us um, in the world of music, is that in 2019, the rights to uh, Bittersweet Symphony, the sample were returned in full to Richard Ashcroft. Um, And this was actually mostly because Alan Klein had died, uh, and the Verve's management went to Alan Klein's son and said, look, this has gone on for long enough. Can we please 
list Richard Ashcroft as the writer of this, and can he please have his money? And Alan Klein's son said, sure, I guess. I mean, maybe by that point he had gotten the money they needed from it. It wasn't uh, a huge smash at that point anymore. Uh, who knows what goes on in the, the dark and murky corners of music industry executives' minds. But that was the decision. And uh, Richard Ashcroft was thrilled and telling people about it at, at awards shows. And he said, uh, you know, there was never any problem between him or, you know, the Verve and the Stones, um, per se. He said he loved the Stones. And, you know, if we think about it, the Stones really did have nothing to do with this because uh, they kind of opted out immediately and said, we don't want to get involved in this. Um, so now the the song uh, Bittersweet Symphony is owned by Richard Ashcroft, and one would hope, you know, the Verve, his bandmates, but I think, you know, on paper, it's, it's just Richard. And God bless him. But there's another really interesting thing, too, with this song, because at the beginning of this episode, I said, you know, we've all heard this song in some form, and I know the listenership of Ear Buddies, most of the army is composed of people, you know, I, I guess, let's say millennials, um, in general, um, you know, we like to come to this place where us millennials can chat about music and music history and theory and things that interest people of our age. But, you know, if you're, if you're older, if you're our grandparents' age, maybe you're more familiar with the Staple Singers version. I don't know. Or, or maybe you're more familiar with The Last Time by the Stones. Or if you're much younger... Um, just a just a babe in the woods, you may be more familiar with this version. That, of course, is Riding Solo from Jason Derulo. It's the third single from his debut album uh, back in 2010. And this is an, an interesting one to me because it was sort of a Mandela effect thing, I think, in my head. Because when I heard this, I was positive that... Uh, I was hearing the actual string samples, at least in my memory, from Bittersweet Symphony. As it turns out, uh, as we listen to that, um, that is not the case. In the demo version, which maybe I somehow heard, did they leak that? In the demo version, you do hear those strings. Um, It's an actual sample from the Verve's Bittersweet Symphony. But this was released in 2010. And if the Verve couldn't get clearance, well, I don't think Jason Derulo is going to get clearance either. So he ultimately had to scrap the demo version and replace the strings with a bunch of little electronic blips that sort of hinted at this at this string riff, uh, but were not the actual string riff. And the thing is, you know, it's the same chord progression, but that is simply not copyrightable. So he... 
he was fine. Uh, he didn't have to deal with Alan and Klein or anybody. Um, but it's interesting um, that that is yet another version of really this may be the last time by the Staple Singers. So I guess, you know, uh, with this particular episode, I don't have a, uh, a big point about um, music rights or colonialism or labor theft or IP to make, really. I just think that this is a, a fascinating story, more, uh, even more than the legal aspects and the sort of, um, you know, circus that was back in the day. It's really interesting to me how a song can evolve uh, kind of beyond the point of even recognition, right? Because if you think about... Um, or you listen to Riding Solo by Jason Derulo, and A and B that against this may be the last time, uh, it's hard to see the, uh, the roots there. The, the genetics don't seem the same. But um, I think it's amazing that just one piece of music can can undergo all of that, right, and, and constantly become something new for everybody to listen to. And really, you know, we, we've talked about almost on every episode this season how we're looking for more mm, excitement or, or more hope or optimism in the world of music. And I am choosing with my, you know my new attitude and my new perspective and outlook on life and music to view this whole story as something that is kind of great. And of course it wasn't great for Richard Ashcroft and probably not the greatest time even for Alan Klein, who I think we kind of hate because of all of his bad behavior. Uh, but I don't know. I think, I think that there is a lens through which to look at these sorts of things that um, that really is all about the tunes because that's the thing here here uh, at Ear Buddies we're all about the tunes and beyond the uh, potential theft and and copyright issues etc cetera, etc cetera, that one tune which started out as a traditional gospel tune written by who knows who uh, ended up being a number of hit songs for a number of artists just because of the adaptations and the evolution. Um, and to me, that's exciting. I, I like to know that that can still happen and is constantly happening. And of course, it's impossible to have a conversation about uh, the evolution of recorded music without uh, really taking notes and checking your history and seeing who owns what. But uh, a song is going to do what it wants to do. And um, kind, of, kind of regardless of the, uh, the legal fees. So, yeah, I guess that's it. I just, I just thought I'd, I'd share that story with you today and hope that you've enjoyed it. Hope that you've enjoyed listening to just my voice, solo, riding solo. Um, and I would invite all of you to come back again next week where Tim will assuredly be back and in fine form as he always is. 
Uh, and wishing everyone a happy Lunar New Year. Um, that's all Maddie's got to say this week. God bless you all, and uh, have a fabulous Monday. <laughs>